Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy, and cybersecurity. I'm Arj. Uh, I'm joined again by Jordan. Hey, Jordan. How are you going? Hi, Arj. I'm very well this week. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited. We're back after a week off uh, with the sort of Easter and Easter break and, and whatnot, uh, but feeling refreshed and, and ready, to, ready to go. How, how was your break? Indeed. A couple of long weekends I worked through, but um, was a very quiet week last week. So, yeah, I've enjoyed the long weekends and I've enjoyed everyone else being on leave. Been nice. nice, nice. I think it's the opposite of a quiet week on the news front, and we're going to get into some of that. I mean, we can't avoid, obviously, the big story that's dominating not just you know the tech airwaves, but a lot of the news, which is Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. So we're going to dive into that. That'll be fun. And then uh, we're going to talk about the use of contractors and consultants by the Australian federal government and some announcements by the Labor opposition about uh, their plans around curbing some of that. You want to kick us off? So we'll start off with Musk and Twitter. And I mean, I don't even know where to start, right? I'm not sure this is even one story, but this like narrative that continues to play out, um, you know, will he, won't he? It started off as a, you know, just an expression of interest and talking about buying it. And he'd been quietly buying a whole bunch of shares and that turned into a, you know, takeover bid and battle and most recently, it's looking like he's successfully sealed the deal with a bunch of debt financing and so on um, to buy Twitter. And But even now, there's takes that are suggesting that there's a chance he'll find a way to back out of it or find a way to push Twitter to back out of it or something. So who knows? The details on the story and what Musk's actual objectives are kind of change by the hour. But essentially, you know, what looks like is happening is Elon Musk is scheduled to buy Twitter for roughly $44 billion. So Twitter will become a privately held company under Elon Musk's leadership. Elon Musk's public statements are essentially that he's buying Twitter in order to protect free speech. So in a statement, Musk said, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital town square. Um, He wants to make Twitter better than ever by enhancing the product with new features. He he says he wants to make the algorithms open source to increase trust and defeat the spam bots and authenticate all humans. Might talk about what any of that means. I'm not entirely sure. But um, Musk is like relatively well known as a bit of a free speech absolutist. Um, So, you know, his idea of free speech is... I suppose very much the American, you know, being opposed to any kind of intervention that he sees as censorship. Um, but he also, you know, has clarified that position a little bit to say, well, you know, obviously any idea of free speech has to be consistent with the law. Anything that Twitter does has to be consistent with the law in the countries it operates. So, you know, he might be in a rude, in for a rude surprise in Europe, say, where hate speech and, and other kind of what he would deem censorship laws are, are can be fairly strong so i don't know there is so much to unpack there i'll throw to you in a sec arj but i think what we were talking about in covering this was that we don't want to delve too much into those specific details of what he said and what you know he's been attacking twitter executives over the last few days on twitter and all of the like the detail i think from our perspective the really interesting part of this story is like 
the fact that this is even happening or a possibility and and how we feel about the fact that such an important piece of digital architecture in terms of the public debate can be acquired, can be kicked around in this kind of way by the richest guy on the planet. That's the sort of head, the headline talking point or concern, if you like, around this, which is that Twitter has come to become the sort of digital town square. And while he is saying and making a case for his intervention being, I want to protect the digital town square, in the same breath, we have to recognize that, you know, he's a sort of rich tech mogul taking over the digital town square. I mean, that's not necessarily a great outcome either. Um, And, you know, so it speaks to what you just spoke about, which is this kind of essential kind of public utility and kind of commons that is now falling into private hands and and so quite understandably we've had digital rights advocates make that comment and and sort of raise those concerns which is that you know this is going to now influence how millions and millions of people around the world access news and information participate in conversation and public debate And, and you know we have to ask a broader question about is this how we want our kind of core utilities and commons to be sort of managed and owned and and the fact that this is happening at all as you said raises a question yeah for sure and we i mean we constantly raise that question when we're talking about facebook as well right like there's this this like really central part of a modern digital life these online services and you know the fact that their whole structure the whole experience is ultimately down to the opinions of like one guy is like yeah fundamentally undemocratic and and problematic even if you know like there's a lot of discussion about whether or not elon musk will be good for twitter right but like which is kind of irrelevant it's like the fact that the opinions of one person determines the thing even if he is a fantastic leader leader for it that's kind of not the point right exactly exactly it's the arbitrariness and you know we, we put so much reliance on these one or two individuals There was a tweet that sort of summed that up during the week um, from a US political scientist and journalist called David Roscoff, who sort of noted that if you look at the Forbes rich list, the richest guy on that list owns the Washington Post and Amazon, which is increasingly our kind of primary means of sort of commerce for many people. The, The second richest person owns Twitter now. The third richest owns Facebook, which is how we kind of communicate and connect with friends and also buy things. And numbers five and six own Google and numbers four and nine started Microsoft and number 10 owns Bloomberg. And so you start to look at all these kind of core services in the hands of half a dozen, eight, nine, ten, very rich, largely men as well. And so you put aside the questions of free speech, people often talk about kind of the state of play in places like Russia and the oligarchy, and it's like, sounds quite similar. Yeah, and critically as well, these are all services that sit in between us and the world. They intermediate our relationship with information. You know, Google tells us what the answers to our search is. Facebook algorithmically determines whose news we see and, you know, who we engage with and so on. Similarly, Twitter. And then the news outlets as well, right? They they produce our view on the world. The, the kind of power that those organisations have is massive. And, you know, we're, I mean, we've got a set of kind of journalistic integrity type rules. Journalism, newspapers is a much older industry, right? And we have, you know, a set of norms and expectations about how they work that 
is supposed to ensure that they're independent and, and trustworthy and so on. Um, you know, I'm not sure we're quite there with the, the social media platforms. And I mean, you know, the argument might be made that the journalistic rules aren't always effective either. But um, I think an interesting take on this and one I really agree with was from uh, Justin Warren uh, in, in one of the Innovation Oz articles on Musk and Twitter, who was basically saying, look, if it matters who owns Twitter, if that matters, then there's something wrong from a regulatory perspective, right? If if we don't trust that these services are acting in our interests, that they're not harming us, that they're not damaging democracy, then that's a regulatory problem. We need to address it. We need laws to that effect. I think it's a great point. And I think it, it shines a, a sort of particular spotlight then on like what whims and fantasies and fancies a particular individual has then because if we have a situation where you know like a like it is at the moment where someone like a musk can take control of a twitter and then subject it to their personal philosophy and then that impacts kind of millions of people around the world yeah justin warren's right i think you know that's a problem that 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 matters unfortunately it kind of does because we don't yet have the the regulation to sort of mitigate some of that. But you, you can kind of see how it can play out when you sort of start to hear the way Musk has talked about some of the issues that Twitter has been grappling with. So when he talks about kind of content moderation and he's a self-described free speech absolutist, um, but he talks about content moderation in what seems to be a really simplistic way, which is in his mind, as long as something complies with the law, go for it, you know, and we know, we just know from the last five to ten years that content moderation is infinitely more complex than that. It is not just a, a case of, well, if something is legal, it's fine and it is without harm. You know, lies may not be illegal, but they can cause significant harm. And, you know, we've seen that through the pandemic. We've seen how misinformation, disinformation can kind of lead to death, frankly, um, if people are led to believe certain things about vaccines, for instance. And then to say nothing of the fact that free speech is, is not just the act of kind of me saying whatever I want, but it's the ability of everyone to sort of have a voice and be able to speak up. And what we have seen in these platforms is that because of the way they're geared up, because of other things about the way they're built and the way they promote engagement, they allow for pylons, they allow for toxicity, they allow for abuse, which in itself is silencing of speech. So it's not as simple as just saying, any individual post is okay as long as it meets the law. It's a much more complex issue. And so, you know, there really seemed to be a sort of naivety there. Yeah, for sure. How do we moderate in a way that makes spaces safe for women, for minorities, for, you know, all sorts of voices that are not in the majority is, is very much not a solved problem, right? Like Twitter struggles with this daily. Ask anybody who's, you know, spent a bit of time on Twitter, particularly if they're not like a white dude. And there's a stack of pylons. And we've seen this just in the last couple of days, right, with Musk himself. He's been tweeting some, you know, pretty critical things about some of the senior leadership at Twitter on their, you know, policy and legal teams. And Elon Musk, with his however many million followers, tweets something vaguely negative about a left-wing policy person. And that leads to death threats, right? That leads to his his entire following piles on vile, vile commentary, you know, direct messages and racist and abusive commentaries and, and literal threats to these people's safety, right? These people have, have to think about crazies turning up on their front doorstep because of a single tweet. Now, you know, Elon Musk, that like that tweet is not 
unlawful. He's not specifically inciting violence, but like he absolutely has to know the likely impact that that tweet is going to have on the person that's the subject of the tweet, right? So there's free speech and then there's, you know, building a space where speech can flourish. And as we've discovered over the last kind of couple decades, it's actually quite difficult to build a speech environment online or offline that is truly free for more than just the kind of empowered majority to um, to participate. Yeah, and I think the other thing it shows, I think, is maybe that he's not actually he's not in step with what is happening even with the law. So, I mean, for all the comments about, you know, as long as it matches the law, the speech is okay. Well, two things. One, Elon, Twitter is international, right? So the law is a different thing. Like he's coming at it probably from, as you said earlier, a US-centric perspective with a very sort of strong view around what the First Amendment, you know, means and, and free speech in that sense. But there are jurisdictions around the world where the law of that jurisdiction is probably not reflective of the free speech values that we want. There are things you cannot say about governments in certain places because of the way the laws operate in those jurisdictions. So how is he going to navigate this kind of very simple principle of, well, if it meets the law, I'm, I'm okay with that because that's going to mean certain forms of dissent in certain jurisdictions will not be allowed on the platform. And then the other aspect of that is that the law itself, even in the US, even in Australia, is evolving to allow and require platforms to do content moderation. Like, you know, we've seen the uh, in Australia, the, you know, the, <clears throat> the online safety uh, push and the sort of the, you know, the work out of the e-safety commissioner, but then the online safety acts kind of talk about, you know, requirements for takedowns around abuse. And in Europe now, we're looking at the Digital Services Act, which, you know, again, is going to require platforms to, you know, exercise some level of, of content moderation. So that is actually going to be a requirement of the law. Yeah. And there's more and more attention to the need for that kind of content moderation as well. And that kind of effort to to make safe spaces and make spaces that are free from disinformation. So, you know, as you say, there's, there's legislative moves um, in that direction. Uh, there's also, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we saw um, Barack Obama, former US president, taking up the fight against disinformation. It's looking like he's kind of chosen that as his new cause to to chase in his post-presidential years. He's made a couple big speeches recently about, you know, exploring the disinformation problem and the need for better content moderation, for fact-checking, for all of these platforms like Twitter and Facebook to introduce measures like stopping viral posts really early, having circuit breakers there so that they don't spread too widely before they can be fact-checked, things like that, which, you know, even that's just totally antithetical to the kind of free speech concept that Musk is talking about. I love the comment that President Obama also made, the call that President Obama made to sort of employees of the platforms as well to to basically leave the organization if, if it doesn't kind of stand up for things like this. And I mean, the, I think the timing probably suggests it wasn't, I don't think it was a response to Musk and, and what he's doing. I think it was probably a bit too close, but it really feels like, you know, a fairly sort of strong statement that Twitter employees might be taking notice of, which is, you know, if this is the changing value set of 
Twitter, then maybe it's not the place for me. Yeah, yeah. And the ability for these big tech companies to execute and to move quickly and to build new products, it's not a question of how much money they have. It's a question of what they can focus on and the the engineers that they can get to work on them, right? The, it's it's a labor problem. And if, if these companies can't attract high-skilled labor that want to work hard and that believe in the mission, that's why it's like Facebook. Facebook's in in the same trouble, right? As they as their brand diminishes, their ability to attract, you know, smart young um, Silicon Valley professionals who are willing to work, you know, eighteen hour days diminishes as well, which then diminishes their ability to function in the market and so on. So yeah, I, I, I loved that comment from Obama. He's searching for the pressure points. Yeah. When you think of that pressure points like that, when you think about, you know, what you just said around the potential kind of w- workforce revolt around this stuff, when you think about kind of the broader complexity that is actually content moderation beyond the simplicity of the way Musk is describing it. Yeah, I really do think like, is he going to realize this is all a bit harder than what I thought? And, and, you know, as you sort of hinted at at the top, maybe, maybe the deal may not go through because he's, he's bitten off a bit more than he can chew. And, and, you know, he's got an electric car company to run as well. Let's not forget that. Like, oh, he's got a space company to run. He's got a drilling company to run. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, if I was a shareholder of Tesla, I'm not sure I'd be so thrilled about kind of stepping into the quagmire that is Twitter. But um, let's move on. Let's uh, let's leave Elon to his um, his fancies. And um, the other story we want to talk about was an announcement by uh, the Labor opposition. We've got the federal election campaign kind of halfway through at the moment. And in the context of that, Labor has outlined a plan to cut government spending on contractors and consultants by $3 billion over the next four years. Uh, and, and sort of related to that is to also scrap an existing and controversial public sector jobs cap. So the first part of that, I think, has been kind of discussed quite a bit, which is, you know, we see increasingly more and more stories about what really looks like wasteful spending on consultants, you know, crazy amounts of money for short amounts of work. So this is kind of something that's been ticking over and in the news. Um, Just some data points to kind of bring that out. So when you talk about the sort of money that the federal government spends on consultants, they're on track to spend more than $1.2 billion in a single year uh, on just the top eight consulting firms. And that equates to about $2 million a day. Spending on the big four firms has more than doubled in the last two years. And then we talked about the staffing cap, you know, in contrast uh, on the public service, public service staffing levels are basically limited to the same levels as they were back in 2006-7. So this has actually been something that's been looked at. So late last year, there was a Senate inquiry into the Australian public service and it, and it basically slammed what was described as this kind of externalization of ICT projects in particular and issued a warning that contractors and consultants are now actually being relied on for what is really core ongoing work and that and i think that's to draw the distinction that you know i mean we're consultants and there can be good reasons for consult consulting right <laughs> i like to believe there can be good reasons to to engage us yeah i mean it's that that reference core ongoing work is is kind of the key right like 
Consultants are more expensive typically than homegrown talent, right? Like core ongoing work is really the focus, right? When when you're turning to more expensive pay-by-the-hour consultants rather than in-house resources to deliver your core ongoing requirements, then, you know, you, you're spending way more than you need to. And it's driven by that cap that you mentioned, right? If the economy grows, the business of government expands, government departments' responsibilities shift and and grow, and they're stuck on the staffing levels that they had 15 years ago, of course, they're outsourcing a whole stack of this work. Just to add to that, what you described also sort of highlights the sort of circular nature sometimes of the argument, which is that, you know, you hear criticism of the public service sometimes as being kind of not up to it. But it's a product of having kind of these staffing caps and running down, you know, the service. So I think there was a story in Innovation I was late last year around the time this report came out, which is talking about the hollowing out of the public service. And so it's like the hollowing out of the public service through these caps increases the reliance on consulting and contracting and then that in turn further hollows out the public service and so it's this sort of circular thing it's a vicious cycle right and as you said there can be very good reasons for outsourcing right like maybe you can't build you've tried and you can't build an internal capability to do a do a task right this is something we see a lot in privacy and cybersecurity. um when we're being brought in we're often brought into organizations that have tried to build internal teams and really struggled to recruit or really struggled to um, to keep those teams going. You know, there's a increasing demand for skills, really competitive markets. So, you know, maybe you can't build the internal capability or, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense to build the internal capability. You know, if you need like really deep expertise on a specific issue once or twice a year, then yeah, okay, maybe, you know, bring in the external much more efficient, much more focused. But when you're starting to just outsource entire ongoing corporate functions, that that gets really problematic. You mentioned privacy and security, and um, we see this, I think, even in even in the private sector. But you know, with technology projects generally as well, there is always a challenge when you have someone external come in and build and deliver capability and then disappear you know like not just technology projects but particularly we see this in privacy and security it's about kind of embedding a culture embedding a set of practices and embedding a way of thinking about these challenges within an organization and so to rely entirely on external consultants now as you've said external consultants have valuable roles to play in certain parts of that challenge but to rely on external consultants as the majority way of doing this you don't have the opportunity then to build and bake in that capability within your organization and you know so we see this even in a private sector capacity is that like you can drop in the best systems in the world but you need the people around them you need the culture that sort of understands what this is all about you know how we treat information how we treat data and so that requires, you know, building that into the APS, building that into the public service. Uh, it's not just a matter of saying, let's get a McKinsey or an IBM or whoever it is to come in, design something over, you know, six to eight weeks, build it and leave. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, the policy, the framework, that doesn't 
get you to culture change. It doesn't get you to awareness across the organization. You need, yeah, you need that sustained um, presence and you need a professional workforce, right? So it, it also goes to what's kind of distinct about the public service, right? That the APS has an obligation to serve the public. They are public servants. They work in the public interest. So I think there's just kind of a principled question here about, you know, and I mean, that's the fundamental liberal labor distinction as well, right? That labor is generally in favor of a strong public service for partly for these reasons, but also, as we can see, for actually pretty good economic reasons. So I'm on board with this labor policy for a couple reasons, for, for the economic reasons that they articulated, but also, you know, as, as we've just talked about, particularly in the kind of tech privacy, cybersecurity space, the problems that we are facing, you know, regulating free speech, um, regulating the, the big pl- platforms, e-safety, privacy, all of that require really deep expertise. And, you know, th- it's absolutely expertise that you can build within government, but you need to be able to recruit the staff and invest in them. And if you're going out to your McKinsey's or to us every time you need a position on this stuff, then you're going to be trapped in that cycle and you're never going to get anywhere. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, just to echo that comment you made about the APS focus on public interest. I mean, that I think that's been called out even by people like David Thody, former Telstra CEO, who uh, he did a review into the APS some time ago. And one of the core principles of the APS that was identified through that review was this idea of stewardship. So the APS has this sort of principled requirement to look into the medium and the longer term and look at how you can kind of address challenges and take opportunities with the interests of all Australians in mind. And that's a very kind of different proposition for a member of a workforce that is unique to the APS, to think about long-term and to think about the interest of all Australians in the way you execute any of these projects. You know, that that's what we require within government, but it may not, and it probably does not exist in a consultant, you know, who comes in to deliver a discrete piece of work and that's for good reason like they're they're there to deliver that particular piece of work but a lot of these projects a lot of these initiatives are you know building kind of systems building kind of services that are that need to be kind of built with all of Australians in mind and with long-term sustainability in mind. And they're sustained efforts, right? Like the work of government is not done. It's this sustained effort and it needs to grow and develop on itself. Um all right. Well, two potentially quite depressing stories, right? The hollowing out of the public service and Elon Musk purchasing Twitter, um, but also two stories that could go the other way entirely, <laughs> potentially in the next few weeks. So we can come back in a month and who knows who's going to be running the country and hollowing out or not the public service. And we can come back in a few days, I feel, and who knows who's going to own Twitter. So both of them totally uncertain. <laughs> Right, yeah, this entire episode could become outdated and invalid by the time we publish, but fortunately we both have such pleasant, deep-sounding voices that, you know, uh, <laughs> that there's enough listening value just in that. For sure, for sure. So, and there's some, uh, yeah, there's some pretty interesting ideas behind it, I think, yeah. So, and hopefully we've been able to talk to that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, good chat, Arch. And good fun as always. Catch you again next week. Thank you. See you next time. Cheers.